each time we've integrated automation or a higher level of technology for a different point in our seed to salad chain, we've been very intentional about that. Not like, let's get a machine harvester because that's what everybody else does. But like, does it make sense for the business at this point? Does it make sense for our employees, right? Our team, is it going to make their quality of life better when they're at work? You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by James Cunningham and Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more and less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. My name is Michael Williamson, and I am here in Detroit at Planted Detroit. And I'm here with Meg and Kai. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, let's go ahead and start with you, Meg. But if you can tell me a little bit about you and your background and kind of your journey to this to this place. Yeah, for sure. So my name is Meg Burrett, and I'm the leader of business development here at Planted Detroit. I've been here since the start. Um, Kai and I both have. My background is in food industry work, so have done some supply chain strategy work for Blue Apron, worked for grocers, worked for um, produce distributors, and was really happy to come and help launch this exciting project, Planted Detroit. Cool. Uh, my name is Kai Meisner. I'm the leader of hydroponic technology here at Planted. Um, I oversee a lot of the cultivation technology, like lighting, climate control systems, irrigation systems. Um, I've been with Planted since the beginning, like Meg. Um, I have a plant science background, so plant physiology and soil science are my interests, and that's how I originally came to Planted, was to work in the growing. So tell me a little bit more about Planted. Yeah, so we are an indoor vertical hydroponic farm, and we grow greens, herbs, and microgreens, and we sell those categories wholesale, but we primarily make ready-to-eat salads, some of which we have in front of us right now, um, direct to consumer, and then also through a few local retailers, which has been a huge growth after we pivoted to that at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, we're a pretty interesting company in that we have a flat hierarchy, so there's five of us on the leadership team. Tom Adamchek, our founder, is officially the CEO, but we don't let him really make all the decisions around here. <laughs> we make decisions as a leadership team. So it's Kai and myself and Tom and then Kelly, who's our leader of plants and people. And then we have Simon as well, who's our head of biosecurity. And biosecurity is, of course, tantamount to the way that we go to market. It's extremely important for us to grow food that is safe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually, I love that. It's something we kind of preach on, on the cannabis side of things is a lot of times people put too much decision making into one person in these facilities. And, you know, we're all human and it's easy to have something that just, you just miss something because you're so busy with startup anyway. So having divergent minds and having a, essentially a committee to make major decisions is something that I, I preach and I'm a big advocate for because sure. you, you tend to, not miss things and you can positively challenge each other. And it, hopefully if you guys are all in agreement, then you know that you're moving forward in the right direction. For sure. We, we are no strangers to debate and we make sure that we're all on the same page about make major decisions, which I think does really help eliminate those blinders that maybe more traditional companies have. If you're just deferring to one person or a small group. Sure. No, I love that. I think that's super healthy. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of the varieties or the diversity that is here at Planted? 
For sure. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we grow a lot of leafy greens, microgreens, and starting to branch into herbs and wanting to get into edible flowers. So for our salad products, you know, we grow a lot of the leafy greens, microgreens that are included. I think Meg could talk a lot about the specific varieties. That yeah, we yeah. So we, when Tom initially wanted to found the company, he was thinking, you know, basil, mescaline mix, like many vertical farms that are trying to just figure out how to grow. Um, and he would tell you if he were here, we really take an R&D approach to every single thing we do. And we try and learn, even if we are evolving into a more mature company. Um, so we started growing those things. And then at the same time, I was out there, like literally pounding the pavement, talking to shit and saying, hey. Where what are you buying locally? What are you locally that you don't have opportunity to buy from other growers? And specifically, like what varietals would you like to put on the plate and say is Detroit grown? And so we started to grow. I think uh, we had up to like seventy different varietals at one point. Just really interesting, sort of bitter, very flavorful. A lot of brassicas family baby greens and always very baby. Um, we tried to grow to more of like what I call a teen size, like four to six inch. And we were able to, um, but it just didn't have the same delicacy and deliciousness of the greens that we grow today. Um, and same with herbs. We got a lot of requests for herbs, uh, but herbs have been a little bit more of a challenge in terms of figuring out how to ideally grow them in our system. So we essentially overlaid what chefs wanted to buy with what we could grow excellently and that overlap of the Venn diagram is what we're still growing today. So we grow about 20 varietals. The majority of it is baby greens. We do do a robust microgreens business as mm -hmm. well. A lot of diversity in there as well. And then a few herbs. Amazing. Yeah. My understanding about the potted herb market is you kind of have two things. You have like a fresh cut kind of a clamshell model. Mm -hmm. And then you even have the live plant model. And, you know, with some yep. like a little basil plant. And I can't remember the stats exactly, but it was something along the lines of like, out of all the different herbs, um, the, the top 10 herbs make up like 80% of the yes. market. And then of the top 10, I want to say like 40 or 50% of it is basil. Yes. And then 10% of it, I think is mint maybe. It's and like an it, extreme 80, 20 rule for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it was really, it was really fascinating to kind of learn that. Um, okay. And I wanted to kind of, I guess, we're in a really cool place. So I want to, if you could just kind of describe the building a little bit, maybe its size and maybe what it was before and kind of the, some of that transformation process a bit. Yeah. So on, on this campus, there's two buildings, you know, we have a parking lot between these buildings. Um, we're currently in our office and what will be our future second farm on the downstairs. Um, across the parking lot where we just looked is our main farm. That's like a 20,000 square foot facility. Um, and that's where we're growing all our leafy greens, microgreens, all our product is created, packaged over there in that farm. Um, and that's kind of where we started in 2018 over there, built that out over the course of 2019 <clears throat> and really started operating, I want to say 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe Thanksgiving of 2019. Yeah. Well, um, and we've been growing over there and had to move over here into this office for basically 2020 and this year. And um, we're just about to start construction on the second, you know, 10,000 square foot farm down below us. And we'll be growing uh, mostly herbs um, and edible flowers down here. 
How old is this building? Yeah, it's, I think it's about a hundred years old. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're definitely old, probably around a hundred year old buildings. Um, you know, we're essentially trying to build buildings within a building. Sure. Um, so that comes with its own challenges and just, you know, old Detroit infrastructure and, you know, how do we marry the new systems and technology with all the old utilities? We, we just, have, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Um, we have some opportunity here in Detroit in that there is a lot of real estate, but a lot of that real estate and the accompanying infrastructure does have some age. And we did learn that in our first iteration of the farm. We tried to grow without building that building inside the building and quickly found that that was not biosecure enough for the type of products that we wanted to take to market. But we're here in Island View, so we're on the east side of Detroit, so we're relatively close to downtown, but this is mostly a residential neighborhood. It's mixed use. So. Okay, wonderful. And from our tour, it looks like you, I'm, I'm trying to recall, I almost forgot, but you guys are using a IMP or insulated metal panel. Is How do you build your rooms inside a room? Yes, right? correct. They're all, they're all insulated metal panels. Yes, That's correct. What, what type of R rating or what is, is it important for you guys? Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I want to say around 21, whatever it is to code mm-hmm. with the Detroit, city of Detroit. <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand that. Um, let's see. I wanted to kind of also get a sense of where do you see the company kind of going from here? Yeah. I know you've had to kind of pivot and shift and, and move with 2020 and 2021, like a lot of small business startups. Mm-hmm. Um, but where do you where do you see the company, you know, in the next year, five years? Yeah, we have absolutely have aspirations of growth. Um, we are happy where we are right now, but have our eyes set on Farm 3. We want to expand within this, the footprint of the city of Detroit which is very integral to our identity as a company. We love the city and we want to continue to contribute this sort of new technology as well as great jobs and good food for local markets. Um, And then the the goal is just to grow beyond that. Uh, Our founder, Tom, his vision is to feed the world and absolutely views what we're doing as additive to the food system, not just our local food system, but overall agriculture and what agriculture will look like in the future, we feel absolutely will have a component of vertical farming in it. Whether it's exactly as we're growing today, we're not sure. Like I was saying, we take a very much an R&D approach and try and find the optimal use of technology as opposed to sticking to one kind um, and just want to have maximized yield and ideally very delicious product. Sure. Um, I'm interested to know, I guess, the total amount of employees and kind of like what, I guess, what a typical kind of shift looks like for your general general workers? Yeah, we have 40 employees now, which is kind of like mind blowing. When we think about in three years, we've grown from just essentially the five of us um, to 40 now. We are a 24-7 operation, but we really are mostly staffed Monday through Friday. We also have a team that is doing work in the various departments of the farm on Saturday and Sunday. We're here about eight to four. The processing team starts a little bit earlier than that. Nice. And you mentioned something earlier that I really loved. Um, you guys are really looking to hire, hire ultra local if you, if, if, as, if you can, which is essentially in your neighborhood. Where For you sure. Go. We feel it's, I mean, not just a desire of ours. It's a responsibility as a new business in Detroit to hire as many Detroiters as possible, especially given the economic history of Detroit. And we know that we have seen a middle class both rise and fall, and we want to be a contributor to bringing more good jobs to support families that want to stay in the city. So like I mentioned, we're in Island View. This is the 48207. We are very involved in the community. We actually have a community relations person, Dwight. He lives here in the 
seven. I live just about a mile away, Kai too. Um, and so we try and hire folks that have maybe been traditionally underemployed because we don't really need any education or experience in vertical farming. We can train someone in less than a month and have them be an extremely high functioning, contributing employee. So that's our goal for sure. Yeah. And I mean, the truth of it is, is there's just, there's not a lot of experience vertical farming personnel, growers or staff out there. It is a new movement that I know there's been doubts and people have said things in the past, but I think the last couple of years have really opened up the eyes of a lot of investors. We're seeing a lot of big money deployed into your specific industry and space. For sure. I think there's been some gains in economies of scale due to the growth of cannabis. So we're seeing cost of lights and other technology come down. And as a result, the overall equation of whether this is a possibility to go to market with vertical farming is starting to look more positive. And we definitely hope to, to lead the way. That's an interesting comment because, um, I guess I never really thought about the cannabis industry being able to help non-cannabis industries with pricing power. Um, historically, in the cannabis industry, it's something that we reference as the green tax. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always have to say, give me the agricultural pricing. Don't give me the cannabis pricing. because It always <laughs> seems like it comes at a premium because there's so much nuance in specification and uh, expectations and criteria where interesting you know so that's that's really interesting to hear on your side too that's fascinating i think that's where a lot of you know more of the technical training is required and like the planning and the designing and the building of the farms but to Meg's point like being positioned in this neighborhood we can train a lot of people who come with no experience because most people don't have experience in this industry but one of the connections with the cannabis industry on the labor side is we have challenges with losing labor to cannabis jobs because they can pay more. You know? sure. And it's a similar skill set. So I think that's something we work through a lot is how do we reconcile the two industries? Oh, that's fascinating. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, we talked about kind of the building and where we are in the company and a little bit of the room inside of room concept. But let's take a deeper dive into that room a little bit. I'm really curious to know about like. Uh, I guess your lighting decisions and kind of how you came to that. I'd love to hear about maybe how your HVAC operates or what kind of levels of control. And then I'm also interested in learning a little bit about kind of, I guess, from let's call it from seed to sale. Um, yeah, sure. I'll start with the technology. I mean, there's a lot to, to break down there. Sure. Um, I have really loaded questions. <laughs> <laughs> with the technology, you know, we always try to be pretty agnostic to particular technologies or brands or systems. You know, I'm always trying to keep my eyes open to what's the latest and greatest tech and what makes sense and what's fluff, you know, mm-hmm. in the industry. And we ended up working with um, Philips and Growwise and Signify to get all our current lighting systems in. Um, they're a good initial partner, able to provide us with a lot of uh, flexibility and lighting control that we just didn't have in our early setups. Um, so really liked kind of, you know, that technology. I've always been aware of PIP horticultural racking. It's something I always kind of kept in the back of my mind. So when we needed to get a system in, um, I knew that was going to be a good fit. And it was really just around like, how do I make the lighting systems and the irrigation systems work with the racking system? Mm-hmm. Um, the irrigation system we have now is pretty, um, Pretty low tech, honestly. We do a lot of stuff manually, a lot of moving ball valves, pressing buttons to turn pumps on. Um, we did that just out of a need to build really quickly. And like, how can I get a system that's functional and get crops out the door um, mm-hmm. while we're in construction? 
But going forward into our next racking system, you saw the next step racks in there, you know, we want to have much more automation, much more control. So, you know, I'm looking at, uh, we're going to install uh, BIOS lighting. Um, you know, they're a good fit for PIP racking just from like an installation point of view. So we sure. love that. Um, I'm very interested in using the full spectrum lighting, broad spectrum lighting. I think it will um, provide a lot of benefits for our crops. Um, and, you know, we're working with Argus and DRAM to design irrigation systems, lighting control. So, you know, we'll have like level specific zone control, irrigating at individual levels, lighting at individual levels. Um, our HVAC is a little, uh, you know, kind of custom made in-house. We try to um, do some novel ideas around like using evaporative coolers and how can we make a lower tech solution that is uh, economical. Um, I think there was a lot to learn there as far as like, what are the requirements in the controlled environment? So I think there were some benefits that we get as far as like economy and capital investment initially, um, but also have some challenges around controlling climate in the hottest parts of the year where we really do need that direct AC cooling. Um, so, you know, we, there's a lot to learn there in a startup. We figured out, okay, you know, you really need to build farms a certain way. So our, um, going forward into this build, you know, we're doing much more traditional AC cooling, you know, hip racking in this farm too. So taking what we learned in the first farm and then applying the highest level of technology and automation in this next farm. People don't realize that, you know, I'm a big advocate for indoor and I've worked in the greenhouse space as well. And green, I, I always compare them to like boats. And to me, indoor is like a cruise ship or a barge. You know, you, you can't shift everything, but it's, it's kind of steady and you can kind of make these strategic changes where I look at greenhouses like, like almost like a sailboat. Like mm-hmm. you're really at the helm and you've got to really work with the outside environment, but people still underestimate that there's still seasonality with indoor farming, Absolutely. right? Especially with like heat waves. It yeah. does impact your building. It's in, you know, that's why the room inside the room is so key. But even still, there's, mm-hmm. you know, extra wear on your equipment. Um, and so, yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I'm actually surprised at how much crossover there is between the two industries, which is pretty, pretty okay. interesting. Yeah, we, I always surprise people with that fact that our seasonality is really real. It's not as volatile as traditional agriculture, mm-hmm. but absolutely we see it. We mm-hmm. need to anticipate it, like Kai was mentioning. We have a little bit of a benefit in that we're here in Detroit, right? So the traditional agricultural, uh, which we have a very diverse agricultural region here in Detroit, I'm very proud of being Michigan grown. Um, but our growing season is short, right? It's four to six months a year. And those are the four months a year that we experience the most difficulty in maintaining our controlled environment. So if our sales go down a little bit because traditional ag farmers are really seeing a boost in the summer months, that works for us because we're easy. We can easily control the environment in the winter and that's when we have the most sales. So it's actually kind of a beautiful food system story to tell. Happy accident. Yes. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, On the irrigation side, when you go to, I guess, uh, the first thing I'll say is I think it's so important to learn how to do things from a manual standpoint up front. You know, I've watched a lot of different facilities go really deep into automation and the commissioning of automation can be a bit painful. Um, and there's things, there's times when it's up and there's times when it's down. But when it's down, you need to be able to pivot your team quickly over to manual operations. Right, because so, sales doesn't stop just because right. the machine broke. Yeah. <laughs> People need to eat. Um, and so, um, so I find a lot of value with what 
that approach in general. And sometimes it's a uh, capital expenditure kind of dictated. Sometimes it's time and materials lately with the way things are going with supply chain. Right. Um, but the fact that you can, when you do go to semi-automation and automation, um, you'll have the ability to pivot when you're maybe fixing a machine or something goes down for temporarily and, and things keep moving. So I think that's a, a really healthy approach and kind of, it's just a, it's one of those like grit experiences mm-hmm. that, you know, you get to look back on one day and be like, remember when we used to do it like this? And like, <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, I don't yeah. want to sound like crotchety and old, but I kind of was like, I think it's good that it, you know, all our new team members like actually have to do something a little manual and understand like what's really happening instead of just looking at a screen. Totally. And, you know, I find I'm really interested in, you know, we talked a little bit about training earlier and you guys are like, we can basically take anyone that's essentially hungry, uh, open to learning and, you know, has good work ethic and we can teach them everything they need to know in a month. Yes. And and, and what's beautiful about that too is you get to create and mold this, the team without any bad habits and stuff like that. I found that the old dog new trick stuff in, in the horticulture and agriculture and vertical farming space can be really challenging. You know, they're like, I've been doing this for 40 years. I've been doing this for 30 years. And so when you, you know, try and train and educate someone on doing it differently, it can come with some friction. Um, for sure. And we try very hard to have that same attitude on the leadership team too, and not just be beholden to something because that's a decision that we made in the past. Like Kai mentioned, highest and best use of technology, and that's absolutely true. Like each time we've integrated automation or a higher level of technology for a different point in our seed to salad chain, we've been very intentional about that. Not like, let's get a machine harvester because that's what everybody else does. But like, does it make sense for the business at this point? Does it make sense for our employees, right? Our team, is it going to make their quality of life better when they're at work? So yeah. How does it impact the end user, right? Exactly. Um, no, I love that. I and we talked about this a little bit earlier when we were walking around, but I want to bring it up again because I think it's valid and I think people need to hear it. Um, people get really excited about startups and if you haven't worked in a startup before, especially if you're, if you're working with plants, right? It's a very different, and I know we're in Detroit, so I think a lot about factory production and manufacturing, mm-hmm. but a lot of that is with um, like inert objects or right. materials. And so now you get to interact with like a living, breathing organism and, um, you can't just shut the lights. I mean, it, it never stops. Like once you turn it on, it's on. But so there's all this initial excitement. I call it like the honeymoon phase in mm-hmm. the cannabis space. And they're like, I'm so excited. And then once you get into it, you realize, oh, I'm going to do this task like a thousand times, you know? And so I guess what are some of the ways that you've been able to um, kind of, I guess, keep people motivated, keep people excited about the mission, um, keep people empowered maybe with what they're doing and why they're doing it. I'd be really interested to see kind of, I guess, like what, what's worked well for keeping culture and morale high in a, in what we'll call a factor, a plant factory setting. I love that question because we have been struggling with that. And I think it's not just us or ag or vertical farms. It's this moment in America and where labor is today And we've been working really closely with our teams to understand like what would make a positive culture for you. Cause we took a very like leadership led approach of let's get to the point where we can offer benefits to the team, where we can offer paid time off. Like we wanted to get to that sort of more established company stage as soon as we could so that we were providing indeed good jobs, not just good jobs in name only. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, working on 
cross-training people so that they can flow between different departments. That way your day isn't as monotonous. And that really wasn't enough. So we went to the team and created a culture committee and said, you know, what would make you guys happier about coming to work? Because we want to reduce turnover. or We want to make sure that people have long and happy careers here with planted or in agriculture, if that's what they'd like to do. Um, and the responses were varied, but actually it's really interesting. And I thought gratifying to see that people just want to be out in the community. Like they want to be out there talking about what we do at Planted Detroit, volunteering, giving back, making sure that what we don't sell is going to a family that is in need. So that was really cool to hear. What would you say, Kai? Yeah, I think on a broad level, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Um, maybe like in a micro example, um, you know, I, Naturally, I want to be like, oh, well, you know, I've washed dishes for many hours, for right. months, you know, or I've seated and done this, but that doesn't work, right? People just don't respond to that. Um, I've really noticed, like, trying to dive in with my team, like, how much time and attention can I provide and what can I do to serve them and give them the tools that they need and try to be as hands-off as possible. And I've noticed that once people have a little freedom and they start to get creative and have a little ownership, then they're more motivated and, you know, want to be here doing that repetitive task maybe a bunch of times because maybe they came up with the process on how to do it a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Well, I, first of all, congratulations on, you know, being able to give your company benefits. It's a big deal. And I've gone through a bunch of startups as we were talking about earlier. And it's like, it's such a, you're on year three. That's, it's really solid to go from five employees to 40 to be expanding. I mean, it's a lot. You Thank guys are kind of like building the airplane while you're flying it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it feels like that for sure. <laughs> um, but um, I focus a lot on culture and team building and, and you guys really highlighted a, a pro move in my opinion. You know, some people are like, okay, we're going to do a barbecue and we're going to do these outings. But instead of doing something like that, you're like, no, let's go to our team and ask them. And that right. is one of the most powerful things that you can do. So I love that approach. Um, it obviously speaks highly to your sophistication and just caring for other people. And also your ability to just get the results you're looking for as well. One of my favorite questions to ask people is how do you like to be rewarded? And, you know, I'm, main, I'm mainly driving this from the canvas space, but growers, every time when I ask them, it's money. And it's not a bad thing because you want your grower to be focused on profitability for the company. Right. But what's interesting is, is every person that's not a grower, uh, anyone in the support of cultivation, it's recognition. They simply want to know that they're doing a great job at a high level. Um, but what's interesting about some of the response that you got is they want to be out in the community, which means that they're really, they're proud of what they're doing. Right. And I think if you can connect people, if you can connect your workers with the end users, especially if I imagine that you guys have probably, we'll talk more about it, I'm sure, but I imagine that you guys probably have like a not leftovers, but like, and I know that you're not going to throw that in the garbage. So I'm assuming, I'm assuming you're working on some pretty cool local programs with some people, but to be able to touch the community like that, that's like, that's like the why you go to work every day. For sure. And I think a lot of people understand the job, but oftentimes people don't train like why this matters, why it's important to us, why it's important to the end users. And I think if you right. can, train people and and explain the why it's not just like i'm asking you to do this task but this is why it's important um that's huge i mean it goes so far um what about like um is there any kind of like a kaizen or continuous improvement opportunities like where they like the employees see like a smarter faster more efficient way to do that they have like a platform or an opportunity to kind of like be a part of maybe suggesting positive change or anything like that i'm not actually familiar with that is. Could you explain yeah. a little bit about what that is? Uh, Kaizen, I think, falls into like the 
It's the Toyota approach to manufacturing. There you go. Um, it's like Six Sigma. You remember we talked about that previously? It comes in like the lean conversations mm-hmm. quite a bit, but okay. essentially, like, and we can use Toyota because it's a great example. They would, I don't know what they do these days, but at one point they would bonus like their team members, not based off of necessarily productivity, but on how often you would change your standard operating procedures or your work instructions. Um, and their idea was this continuous improvement mentality. So you would be constantly pressure testing your current processes and actively trying to find a smarter, better, more efficient way. Maybe it's less touches. Maybe it's, we talked about value adding touches and non-value touches earlier. Maybe it's um, just a different approach. Maybe yeah. if we reconfigure this lineup. And what I find is, is a lot of times, because you guys are so busy, you have a lot of like, you're in and out of stuff, but the people that are on the line every day, they're incredible resources for feedback because they're yes. doing it every day. And if you listen to their frustrations, you may be able to like pick up on like, well, okay, they all, they, you know, all of them are saying that you know, this part is a uh, really not ergonomic or it's slowing them down. And it's like, well, wait a minute, maybe you can take some of that, let's call it negative feedback and yeah. you can kind of flip it on its side and make that a positive change. Yeah. We have a really good example of how we integrated that and it was truly t- making lemonade out of lemons. So when we first made this pivot to ready to eat salads, at the beginning of the pandemic, we essentially took, we were growing wholesale, tried to make some salads and salad mixes out of it and then pressure tested it in the community People liked it. So we tried to improve it. We were like, okay, now we're a restaurant, right? We're making salads, we're making meals. Let's hire some folks that have worked in kitchens so we can get some folks with knife skills, cooks, you know, get some creativity in the kitchen. And it was great while we first started. Then as sales started to pick up, it became clear that we were not exactly a restaurant. We're like a restaurant food manufacturing facility hybrid at the tail end of the farm. And so maybe we should change our systems a little bit, but the team was like, it's working okay. And then very quickly as sales continued to ramp up, we saw that the systems didn't work at all. And the team was like, it's coming too fast. We just need more hands, essentially make our line bigger and more robust. But instead of doing that, we said like, why don't we like review the process and see maybe we shouldn't be building to order. Maybe we should be building like most manufacturing facilities do right to a forecasted amount of sales Mm -hmm. and then see if that fits well into how our sales are coming to fruition and essentially flipped the entire processing room from that um, just-in-time manufacturing model to more of a, a prescribed approach to process to manufacturing and it has worked super well but in the meantime right we did have some turnover because the team was like we are like what is happening is not working and you guys are so busy that you aren't hearing our concerns and that was a huge learning for us as leadership team right which is not to say okay, the job is hard and we're sorry, um, but we still need to get it done. But actually to hear what they're saying instead of just listening to their complaints, what they were saying is the process doesn't fit where sales are today. So we really need to revisit it. And we tried very much with this new team to foster that attitude of tell us when things are wrong so that we can work on fixing them together. And now we have a lot more interactions with the team, a lot more sit-down meetings where we take folks out of their daily environment and say, What's good? What's not good? What's exciting to you today? What's the challenge that we're facing this week? And it's it's been great since then. But you got me sold. I, I want to work here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. Um, God, it sounds like it's just a really healthy experience. And I know that um, I know that there's always a lot of challenges and stressful sure. moments. As you know, so I don't want to paint it as like it's everyone should do this. Um, but I do think that more and more people 
I, I, I would, I would, if I was in your position, I would welcome the competition. I think we really need to get people open to um, localized food. So I'd love mm-hmm. to take a minute to talk a little bit about um, if you can kind of educate uh, our listeners on kind of a typical food supply chain system mm-hmm. and how things are kind of handled and travel distances and then kind of what, what is so different about what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So the majority of the food that we eat in America comes either from California Yuma, Arizona during the winter, especially when it comes to leafy greens. And then, of course, we get a lot from Central America. Um, And we have, of course, a few other places in the U.S. where we have a diverse uh, agricultural region where we're growing a lot of row crops. Michigan is one of them. We're actually the third largest in the country. Um, But we have varying growing seasons. So often we are pulling from those other places, which means tons of food miles, lots of time on the road. Often the varietals that are grown are ones that can withstand that journey. So the best example, right, is apples. When I grew up, I'm 40. When I grew up, it was like, you got red delicious, yellow delicious, or granny Smith. That was all you could find in the grocery store. It's because those apples were the ones that both could withstand cold storage for nine to 12 months and also be shipped in a case across the country multiple times. So we wanted to take an approach that essentially flipped that script completely, right? Like we wanted to grow a local food for local markets and grow a product that both could last a really long time, thus our approach to biosecurity, and also be a lot more delicious. Because while you're losing time and you're losing nutrition as food is, is coming all the way from Arizona to Michigan, for example, you're also losing flavor. And I think that's what people don't think about if that's all you've eaten your whole life, right? So when we bring our greens, like especially our baby mustard greens to folks and say, like, taste this alongside the, you know, romaine heart that you bought at Kroger, it's amazing to see people's face like, whoa, this is lettuce? Like, I had no idea it could taste like this. And that's definitely the reaction that we get from our ready-to-eat salads is we try and make very interesting flavor profiles that really highlight those greens. We don't douse them with dressing, right? We want you to taste the lettuce that's in there because there's something to taste. Yeah, you could have said it better. And, you know, I like we were talking about, you lived in California, you're also a Floridian, like yes. I am, I've come back to Florida, but it's really fascinating to see the quality um, and the flavor of food in California. And then as you progressively go east, the decline is significant, right. especially with leafy greens. Um, most of my family lives in Italy. And so I grew up um, visiting quite a bit. And, you know, people are like, oh, the food, you know, the chefs are so good in Italy. And I was like, the chefs are, they're, 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 they're good. But like, if you look at how they cook, the food is, first of all, they're, in, they're like, they have a word for organic, but it's just food. Um, right. They've been kind of a non-GMO country for a long time. And so, but if you look at the ingredients that the chefs actually use, it's about as simple and basic as it gets, but the quality and the tomato is such a great example. The typical tomato in the United States, I mean, it's like, it has no smell. People right. don't realize that a tomato smells incredible. <laughs> um, it has no flavor we talked about. And also it doesn't have any nutrients or vitamins in a lot of cases or, or a lot less. Um, right. So yeah, it's, it's always nice. And I think these younger generations, because we've been depleting our food chain if it's vital nutrients and flavor for so long, like they don't even know because they right. don't have anything to compare it to. No, uh, we actually just started working with a, a technical high school that's down the street from us here called Go Lightly. They have a culinary program and our community relations manager, Dwight, is taking an approach for the lesson of having the kids make a salad or a dish with our greens and then one with the same type of greens, but purchased from a traditional supply chain and then trace back exactly how they got to us. So like that romaine heart, who did you buy it from? 
this distributor? Who did that distributor buy it from? This grower? Where did that grower grow it? Could be in any number of these places. And then comparing flavor and nutrition so that we can really teach those kids. Like, it's not just this idea of local food is better. There's like many layers of reasoning behind it being better. That's incredible. I'd love to follow along with that yeah. and see some end results. And I think it's important that the education component for children is huge. Um, there's as the world's a really interesting place right now, but everybody needs to eat and everybody needs to eat real food. For uh, sure. And it's fun to like have that palate experience with someone, especially like you're mentioning your spicy mustard. Like mm-hmm. that's such a unique flavor. Right. Um, and you know, a lot of people are like, I've never, I've never eaten it before. So to get that emotional reaction and kind of that direct feedback from the community, that's really incredible. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about, I guess, I guess, so I understand that you guys do some wholesale. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also doing some, I saw some Uber Eats signs when I came yeah. in. So you're you're working direct to consumer as well, mm-hmm. is that right? And then you're clearly working um, with, you know, different chefs and kind of creating and mm-hmm. identifying things that work well and unique offerings. Right. Um, are most of those restaurants relatively high-end restaurants? Are you For finding sure. that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've we have a really amazing restaurant scene here in Detroit. It definitely suffered a little through the pandemic, but we've seen a lot of real creative chefs come up through the ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we primarily serving white tablecloth restaurants in Detroit before the pandemic. A few local neighborhood joints as well that just really liked what we were doing and liked to source locally, but often our cost was prohibitive for those sure. more affordable price point restaurants, which is why we were so excited to launch these ready to eat salads because by adding those toppings, we were able to reach a price point where it's more affordable for the everyday Detroiter to buy it. And then they got to taste our local greens in the local market. So what happens to like, I guess, leftovers or extras? Cause I imagine you guys have found a really creative outlet for that. Yeah, a few different things. So we partner with Food Rescue US, which is a national organization that has a Detroit chapter. They do food distributions of all kinds. So if we have, say, like 10 pounds of broccoli microgreens, we put it into their app. They find someone who can use those microgreens, whereas we might not be able to find that chef or, you know, food kitchen. And then we work with a couple of like immediate local, like in the 4207 nonprofits that can use some of our products. So we did a program teaching younger kids, like eight to 11 year olds, how to grow in a mini version of our systems. And it's literally just down the street. They also have a kitchen. So we take them some greens and salads. And then I'm most excited about the community fridges that we supply. So there's some community fridges in Detroit, three that we supply where it's just free food. Um, people can go if they're food insecure and take whatever they need. And we take these salads if they're on day six, still extremely edible. I mean, we eat them for like up to three weeks. I was going to ask you, what's a, what's a typical shelf life on something? Yeah. Like? Uh, so we, six days for our customers, but we eat them for a long time. The greens themselves, we get at least three weeks, which is pretty amazing. All because of our biosecurity. Um, and we're actually putting a new community fridge right here in this neighborhood as well so that we can really provide these salads for our food and security neighbors. I don't know that I've heard of a community fridge before. That's a really cool concept. That's, yeah. You know, it really uh, exploded in the pandemic. I think the first one was in Brooklyn, but then there was a few others and now they're all over and they essentially have like an Instagram page, but then people in the neighborhood know it and local artists will create like a little shed for it so that okay, you was, can access it during all seasons. So it's, it's like, it's, it's outside. Literally it's just a fridge power from a local business. Yep. Someone who agrees to be a partner for us. We're going to partner with a local business that is affiliated with one of our neighborhood churches. 
I love that. That's yeah. really incredible. After all that, we also open up the salads, whatever's left to our employees yeah. and for us here sure. too. So yes, yeah, staff salads is probably the first place where we uh, give unsellable yeah. salads that are still delicious. Everybody eats salad every day here. I, uh, I wanted to ask you, because we talked a lot about biosecurity, but we didn't really get into it too much. And I know we talked, we, we, there was some positive pressurization in the mix, but Kai, if you can elaborate a little bit on some of the biosecurity infrastructure and practices. Certainly. Yeah. So um, Simon, our leader of biosecurity, you know, he, really sets a lot of the policy and, you know, teaches us a lot about, you know, microbiology and why we need to uh, wear protective clothing and wash our hands and, you know, also what we're trying to keep out of the farm. Um, What we do is, you know, you have to take your shoes off before you enter the biosecurity room, take off your outerwear, like your jackets and stuff like that. We have a changing room where um, you can change out your street clothes and put on like a jumpsuit. So we have like full jumpsuit and then you have to put on boots, hairnet and face mask. And then we have like a Maritech automated hand wash, boot wash station where mm-hmm. you just, you just stick your hands in and essentially just washes your hands for you. Um, and it has a little boot station where it puts solution uh, to clean your boots. Once you do that, you're ready to enter the farm. Um, and then, you know, we have to wash our boots every so often, change our PPE all the time. So that's what we do for, you know, the people part of it. Um, we also, you know, clean on a very regular basis. And like for our processing room, we have UV lights and ceilings. So like during the off hours in the night, those come on and sterilize all the surfaces. Nice. We do on-site listeria testing a couple of times a week and we do ATP testing, testing every day after we do final cleaning at the end of the day. Um, Simon, like Kai was mentioning, is he has a background in microbiology and he's super serious about taking a very intentional approach to how we do our testing. We also do third-party testing periodically. And I'm sure you, or I'm not sure, maybe you didn't hear about the Bright Farms E. coli outbreak that happened a couple weeks ago. No, I, I, did, I, I did, did read about it. Yeah, unfortunately, we're a member of the CEA Food Safety Coalition. Simon serves on that for us. And so Bright Farms came to the coalition, they're a member as well, and said, hey, this happened, and this is exactly what we went through. And they didn't get any more positive tests after that outbreak, which is unfortunate because there's no way to address it and make sure it doesn't happen in the future. But as a result, we sort of reviewed all of our biosecurity procedures, like are we really doing everything we can? And started to look at our seed stock as well, which we weren't really scrutinizing before, but now we are. We're also in the process of seeking organic certification, which means we already have a limited amount of suppliers that we seek seed and other products from. So we just are forever like that Kaizen approach of like, how can we be more and more safe? Sure. Both for our employees and our customers, but also for the company, right? The business, like if you need to protect the business. It's extremely rice. important. Yeah. 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 One of the things we're in the middle of revamping some of our irrigation systems. So Simon can more easily take water samples and we can more easily like flush out all the lines. So it is a continual improvement. Yeah. Process. We've been, uh, I guess said so many things that I could talk about forever and I know I can't be, I can't hang out with you all day. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and some people might not know what an ATP machine is, but ATP is essentially a swab, right? And it's, yeah. and is there any plating involved with ATP? No, because it's just a swab. Is it the 3M one? I think so, but yeah. Simon would know okay. the answer yeah. best. But you're, you know, an ATP machine essentially validates that something is sanitized. Right. Um, There's no building blocks of life, so it's yeah. got to be clean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talk a lot about data-driven decisions, and mm-hmm. that's one of the tools that we use as well to validate, like a sanitation process or something like that. Yes. Um, um, so the seeds for a minute. Um, I'd love to know. I guess 
how do you source seeds? Um, how do you validate quality of seeds? Um, it's just, it's such a fascinating thing. We talked about your, your, your seed, uh, air needler as well mm-hmm. and, and how automated all that is. But if you can talk a little bit about, yeah, the seeds in general. Yeah. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, like most growers, we have had to source seeds from a lot of different people and kind of suss out which, uh, seed providers are really giving us the best quality seed, the cleanest seed. So we kind of bridge the gap between seed and biosecurity. We do require uh, like good manufacturing and good agricultural practices from our seed suppliers. And we need to have phytosanitary documents mm-hmm. stating that there's no human pathogens and that they've been tested. Yeah, for that kind of stuff. Weeds or- exactly. Mm-hmm. So we, we make sure our suppliers are, um, you know, in line or complying with like what we said, you know, uh, what, what our expectations are as far as like good manufacturing practices. And, I know Kelly is always kind of like looking at different suppliers and who can get us the best crops. And then another layer to that would be sourcing seeds that are really meant for hydroponic growing, right? That's kind of an area of seed supply that is expanding right now is people breeding seeds specifically to grow in indoor farms. So I'm sure that's just a field of constant research. That's interesting. I, is it, I guess how, I'm curious to know how, well, what are they doing that's for indoor farms? Is it through like selection or are they also doing the breeding work indoors as well? I know some people are like, oh, you got to do your seed breeding in the sun or, you know, I'm, I guess I'm curious to know if there's any insights on like, how do you create seeds for a hydroponic or indoor environment? I don't know like the exact specific techniques they may be using, but I, I would assume that they're picking varieties that are, you know, uh, more tolerant uh, and tighter quarters can handle, you know, interest plant competition a lot easier because mm-hmm. they're more densely packed um, and they don't have to select crops that are drought resistant, right? Because there's a bunch of pressures that plants face outside, but don't face inside. So if growers or seed growers are focusing on varieties that can tolerate competition or, you know, those types of um, constraints, I think. I think that's how they. Yeah, so that makes good sense. And uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but it's you know you've got to grow stuff that grows well in your environment. Right. A lot of cultivators and growers they just try and force a variety that either isn't commercially viable or it just doesn't work for their particular setup or environment. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's really key. Um, Let's see. Let's let's. um, I want to talk. Just closing some thoughts on the biosecurity stuff. So it seems like you really protect the people. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is like, we are the vector, right? right. We're, the, we're, we're, we're the virus. If you want to, if you want to say that. So um, that all makes really good sense to me. Um, and what I heard also, is it sounds like you guys do not spray anything no. on your product. And I didn't hear any comments around like biological or beneficial um, releases of predatory bugs or anything mm-hmm. like that. We don't really do, yeah. So no pesticides, herbicides ever touch leaf surfaces of our plants. We don't put anything in the water. You know, nothing. No that's, pesticides, herbicides. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, that's all due to the, the robust biosecurity protocols. Um, I'm sorry. What was the second part of your question? Um, it's a good question. I, I don't know. <laughs> But, you know, and this is a big differentiator between you guys and your typical leafy green agricultural farm that for is sure. spraying on a regular basis for mold and mildews, for pest pressure. Um, and, yeah, that is just, I mean, that alone, you know. I think it's been hard to, you know, you might be able to speak to this better, but just getting our, you know, consumers and customers to kind of understand yes. that difference and benefit 
I don't think that's really like common right. knowledge at this point. That seems like your greatest challenge that I see is For sure. the education component, um, taking the time and, yes. and getting the right audiences to understand what is different about your product right. and why it is superior. And um, because we do take a collaborative approach to the, the other growers in our food system, whether they be other types of CEA farms or traditional soil grown ag, we don't like to be like, look at those guys, they did it wrong, but sure. we're doing it right. But so that approach to telling the story can be even more challenging, right? Yep. So we we just try and highlight what we are doing that we think is most important to have a healthy and safe product. So the no herbicides, no pesticides is a really easy way to start the conversation because we know a lot of consumers, especially moms of young children, really care about what they're feeding their families. And so we want them to know. That's actually part of why Tom started the company because he has four young children and he wanted to make sure that he was feeding them healthy stuff and they love to eat our salads, which is kind of unheard of as well. Um, but also we, we want to tell that story of um, it's not just safer on this side, but it's also safer on the other side. So like all the E. coli recalls that we hear from traditional soil grown farms, especially those in the Central Valley and in Arizona. We don't often see that in our type of growing because of the methods that we approach that we take the approach that we take. So we talk about that whenever we get, um, you know, featured on local media, we want to show people our approach to cleanliness. And when we are telling our story on social media, we try and show the inside of the farm as much as possible. So people can see how we're fully PPE'd up and how clean things are when we're packing these salads so that they can feel as confident as possible in this unwashed product. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And we talked about it. Like a lot of people just have no real awareness of how food is produced, but right. most people think, okay, it's outside, it's in the sunshine, there's some soil or dirt, and there's long rows, and maybe there's some tractors and stuff like that. Um, but when you look at your farm, it tells a very different story. Right. Yeah. It also really protects, like, the people who work on the farm. I mean, right. people who apply pesticides, you know, I mean, people are getting cancer from glyphosate, and you have to be licensed to handle all these pesticides because they're really dangerous. And honestly, we try and limit um exposure to even just the cleaning chemicals and we're you know my team is working towards like how can we even get even safer cleaning chemicals you know mm -hmm. um it's i think it's an added benefit i'm trying to think have you looked into like i guess like the equivalent of like kangen water or like different ph waters for sanitation or anything like that um we're looking at like uh so we're looking towards getting a hypochlorous generator so yep. we can keep orp high uh we're also looking at i can't remember what it, basically it's like a soap nut type uh okay cleaner and it's very food safe but it does a lot of the same uh, has a lot of the same cleaning principles i wish i knew right now off the top of my head but yeah, always working towards like those, you know, more yeah, biologically that's, that's safe. Awesome. And a lot of people don't realize that organic food in some cases is sprayed even more often. It might be with, um, quote unquote, safer products, yeah. but because they're not as effective as the traditional conventional agriculture, right. um, on maybe disease or pest pressure that they have right. to actually spray more frequently. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and from a sustainability perspective, right, it's not just about that head of lettuce and how much pesticides it is on it, but how much is being absorbed into the soil and integrated into the ecosystem. And there, that impact may be net negative. Yeah, right. Our, our water sources. Right. right exactly. Um, I imagine you guys are using significantly less water than a typical farm as well. I don't know if you have any cool stats on that. And, yeah, we do, but. Yeah, everybody wants to throw around water <laughs> stats. I don't, I wish I could put like a number to that exactly, but yeah, we definitely conserve and recirculate as much as our water as we can. 
Um, you know, obviously we do have to clean our systems, right? So we do like lose water during certain events. Um, but yeah, we, we recycle everything as much as possible and try not to dump any fertilizer. What type of filtration are you guys going through with water treatment? Um, we filter the municipal water coming in. I mean, we use municipal water, so it's already pretty good. I can pull up all the cities, you know, um, you know, the stats on the water, but we quadruple filter and then UV filter before it even hits any tap on the farm. And then I have filters set up after every irrigation system. They hit sumps, come through filters before they even make it back into the holding tanks. Nice. Well, in closing, I'd love to, you have these beautiful, um, these beautiful salads in front of me. So I'd love to, if you want to give me kind of like a breakdown of what, what we've got in here. For sure. Obviously, I don't think you guys are growing olives and <laughs> no. somewhere, but I'd love to learn more about some of those suppliers. And- yeah, so 100% of our salads right now are vegan. Um, so that feta that you just mentioned is actually a, a flax-based feta. Okay. It's like shockingly like real cheese. Most of us are actually omnivores. Okay. So it's kind of funny that most of our products are vegan, but we're absolutely satisfying a niche market that otherwise didn't have a lot of opportunity here in the Midwest. So we do buy from, we're just down the road from one of the biggest and most robust um, food hubs in the Midwest that's called Eastern Market. It's a farmer's market, but they also do a whole lot of other stuff. And we buy a lot of our products from distributors and other food businesses that are centered in Eastern Market. Um, so the things that we don't grow here that we can't grow in, in our farm, like olives, like garbanzo beans, we buy either from there or from other local um, growers. And then we also do a lot of value-added products ourselves. So these um, peppers are Michigan-grown Hungarian hot peppers that we pickle in-house and then put onto our Greek salad. And each of our salads, so we have a relatively small right. line. So we yeah, have. I'm looking, the Greek, I'm looking at the Greek town. Yes. You guys did, you guys did the, did you do the romaine or the golden frill? We do 100% of the base. The herbs, greens, and microgreens is us. Okay. And the scarlet frill. I've got mm-hmm. arugula microgreens in here parsley microgreens, and then you work with local suppliers for the dill, the red onion, the cherry tomato, the cucumber, the golden beets, the pickled Hungarian peppers, but you guys are involved with that. Yeah. We grow the dill. We do oh, grow the, grow dill, the dill, dill as well, yeah. All nice. of the herbs and microgreens in there are us. And all of our salads are named after a neighborhood in Detroit. I just noticed that. <laughs> so Greek Town is our where we actually have casinos downtown. Yeah. So a lot of people that don't live in Detroit are familiar with that neighborhood if they're not familiar with any others. And then Southwest, we have a really strong Latinx population in Detroit. Super amazing Mexican and other types of Latinx food in that neighborhood. And so we have this like kind of Southwest uh, flavor salad. And then the Belle Isle, which is our number one seller and one of the only ones that we've had since the inception of the RTE program, um, is named after our local state park that's an island that's just right off of our neighborhood, that's actually where our neighborhood is called Island View, is because of Belle Isle. And so this is more of like a Middle Eastern kind of like Moroccan flavor profile. There's dates, Kalamata olives, garbanzo beans. And then again, the whole base is ours. And this base is very herb forward, very spicy greens. And so you really get like a lot of uh, flavor in your mouth. Yeah, I know this is a podcast that I can't see, but these are, <laughs> these are beautiful. Thank um, you. And, yeah. I, and, you know, there's the quality of the ingredients looks great. Also, the diversity of the ingredients and the mixes look incredible. I travel quite a bit for work. And so, you know, if you're in an airport and, like, you have to grab one of those, I won't even do it, but, you know, you grab one of those, like, pre-made salads. And it, they're, like, they're like sad. They're, they're like, so they're, sad. They're depressing. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I would love to see you guys uh, just be everywhere. Gosh, it would be so incredible if we were in airports. Totally. 
And um, it's like a great place where people need real nutrition. Yes, uh, absolutely. Because it's, it's a little rough. Yeah. <laughs> your, your airport's actually pretty good for, for food over others. But um, yeah, when, you, when you're looking for health, nutrient-focused food, it's 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 skimp out there. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're excited for you to taste these after we're done recording. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for that too. All right. Well, you know, I just want to thank you very much for hosting us today. Um, I look forward to future visits. If you'll have me when I'm in town, of I course, see your progress. Um, thank you for putting your trust into PIP. Uh, we're really proud of what you guys are doing here. And we wanted to take this opportunity to kind of highlight your story because to be honest with you, it's incredible. And, uh, hopefully it uh, can inspire others to, uh, maybe reevaluate what they think they know about their local food supply chain, maybe get involved. Um, you know, I'd love to see a planet, uh, any city, any city name. <laughs> yes. you know, in my mind, I'm like, Oh man, we gotta, we gotta spread this planet out. Orlando. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, so it's, this is great. It's been really good for me. So thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to cultivation elevated. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at pithorticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.